0: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: You're listening to Carrie Lutz's Financial Survival Network, where you get valuable information you just can't find anywhere else. To thrive in today's trying times, you need the Financial Survival Network, now more than ever. Go to FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com and get your free newsletter and gift.
2: Financial Survival Network, now more than ever and welcome you are listening to the financial survival network i'm carrie lutz well just when you thought that there was nobody left in government who actually cares about fiscal sanity who cares about the dreaded four-letter word debt well i'm about to prove you wrong Uh, Richard Vague is with us now, and Richard is a public official. Uh, You are Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. You might not be aware of the fact, but certain what we call states are not really states. They're commonwealths, and uh, there's a whole history to that term. But basically, people get together for the common good, the commonwealth, and that's why we've got these commonwealth. I think uh, Virginia is a Commonwealth one other state maybe Rhode Island I think is also a Commonwealth Uh, and it's really not Rhode Island it's the uh, Commonwealth of uh, Providence and Plantation but uh, that's a the whole controversy for another time Richard it is great to have you on the show Uh, you're preaching a message of financial uh, sanity, stability, solvency. Your two books uh, illustrate that extremely well. An illustrated business history of the United States and the case for a debt jubilee. Uh, well, uh, maybe a debt jubilee is is really uh, what we need. Uh, what's your mission here, both as a public official and as uh, somebody, a public figure who's coming on shows like ours, uh, where we're more libertarian bent and really in favor of restoring the greatness of the country.
1: Well, first of all, I applaud you for that uh, that objective. And uh, it's a great privilege to be on your show. And uh, I, all the opinions I express today are my own and not those of the Commonwealth. Obviously. But. <laughs> but uh, I uh, have been studying you. There's one other book I've written that you didn't mention, which was called A Brief History of Doom, where I go back and reconstruct the reasons that created all the major financial crises, both here and then the other five major economies across the world. So I became deeply involved in studying debt and not just government debt, because Government debt's really the smaller part of the equation. In the U.S. and globally, private sector debt, business and uh, personal debt, far exceeds um, government debt. But what you notice about the whole thing is that both public and private sector debt are growing faster than national income. So, you know, in the case of private sector debt in 1950, it was about 50 percent of GDP. Now it's 160 percent of GDP and still growing. So, you know, my own view is unless we face up to that reality and begin to put strategies together uh, over the longer term to deal with it, we're just going to continue to see financial calamity.
2: Yeah. And obviously, uh, as Americans, uh, generally we don't, uh, and democracies in general, we're not really proactive in avoiding doom catastrophe. We're more reactive to it. And until perhaps uh, things really uh, get to their ultimate worst, collapse and all that, do you think there's a way to prevent it?
1: Yeah, well, I do. And, you know, I speak as someone who was a bank CEO for 30 years and, you know, therefore, uh, you know, a contributor to the private debt growth in this country. Uh, I, I, I do. I think anytime debt within a sector grows too rapidly, it means overcapacity is being created. And you're going to have trouble. And that, you know, you may or may not recall the particulars, but in 2002, we had about $5 trillion in residential mortgages. And by 2007, it was $10 trillion. So, you know, it grew $5 trillion in 40 years, and it grew another $5 trillion in about three and a half to four years. And that signaled, tra- anytime you're creating that much capacity that
2: quickly, you're going to have a trouble. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get that. And we've seen it over and over again, the debt cycle the money, the business cycle, they kind of follow each other hand in hand. And I think the problems are pretty well known for those who care to examine them closer. But uh, once uh, you diagnose the problem, but nobody wants to do anything about it, what do you do? You know, in, in this particular case, it's it's even worse than that, because a
1: debt boom, as you had, let's call it, 2003 four, 5, a debt boom creates good times now they're illusory but you know you know can you imagine being a regulator or politician coming in and questioning uh rapid growth in debt when there's so much you know jobs are being created you know tax revenues at the government level are increasing uh, government debt uh, you know uh, normally in the period before a crisis government debt actually gets better because tax receipts are temporarily boosted uh so you know the ability to step in and say you know let's be examine our credit policies and examine the risk we're creating uh is a very difficult t- thing but it can be done
2: mm. yeah that's the problem like you said that uh, things appear to actually be really good mm-hmm. um the party goes on they're partying like it's 1999 as they say and it's really hard to get anything done then it's only in the aftermath the collapse that we really see uh, any desire to to actually uh, do something about it and oftentimes uh capitalism gets blamed for it right i mean that's really uh what happens right capitalism
1: gets capitalism gets blamed um, mor- moral fiber gets blamed. <laughs> there's all there's all sorts of scapegoats that are trotted forward after the the damage
2: has been done. Yeah. So, and it's it's real convenient, real easy to blame capitalism, blame other countries, and all this. But like Pogo said, uh, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Right. Yep. So, so like I say uh, again, we get to the situation like, how do we How do we do this? How do we uh, really get this thing done? Well,
1: there's a couple of things. And I'll I'll start with the, you know, um, the debt relief issue first. Uh, We we need to think creatively about this. Student debt has grown from, you know, in the last few years has grown from a trillion to a trillion eight, you know, and a lot of that is for universities where the graduation rates are poor and the credentials are dubious. And, um, you know, we, we We have an issue there, and and I think, you know, and I've gone all across the country and talked in focus group to, you know, average, you know, middle class folks about these issues. Uh, I think we need to get creative about a way uh, for folks to get debt relief. And now my proposal in the case of student debt, and this is in the book that you mentioned, the case for a debt jubilee, is to let individuals do uh, volunteer community service as a way to accelerate uh the the repayment of their student debt it's not a magic wand i'm not advocating that we come in and we wipe out everyone's student debt because there's a large issue of unfairness there you know you forgive this person's debt how about this person that was responsible in paying their student debt but we do give young folks that are trying to establish households a way to accelerate uh, their repayment of debt and get onto their, you know, what the economists would call household formation, buying a house, getting married, having kids. So that's the kind of thing we have in the book is practical ideas, uh, for trying to remediate
2: at the margin, uh, the debt that's accumulating so rapidly. Mm. All right. So community service is one thing, but what Like when we go back to the way it was handled in 08 and 09, we have a debt problem. What do they do? They just pile on more debt and the government encourages this. So what kind of incentives can the government provide to avoid these situations and stop the debt cycle once and for all? And the other question is, is the cure worse than the disease? Certainly for a politician's career, it very well could be.
1: Well, we never see. I want to talk about mortgages a little bit because, uh, you know, I have some ideas about what we could have done differently in 08. But in, you know, 04, 05, 06, and almost all the damage had already been done by the winter of 2006, uh, you never we've studied 43 major instances of this, which in the United States includes the Great Depression, the 86, you know, RTC savings and loan crisis, uh, Frankly, it includes a number of very juicy crises in the 1800s, you know, 1837 and 57 and 73. And you never have runaway lending unless you find lenders have compromised their credit policy. This was obviously the case in um, 08 where lenders were making loans where no income No evidence of a job, no assets were required to qualify for the mortgage. And I think it is the purview of regulators to, at the very least, make that information clear to the public, to the shareholders of those institutions, to the public, to the financial analysts, uh, and let them make the proper decision about whether the type of lending that is being done is is appropriate. You know, it obviously wasn't, but the, the information on the compromises in credit quality had been obfuscated
2: right so that's a great point that uh, the lending standards go out the window you know this time richard with the real estate boom the way it is the lending standards haven't gone so much out the window have they and yet we're facing like another bubble you know the w- what's going on right now in real estate is very
1: very different than what happened in 06 07. the level of new homes being built the level of home sal- sales sales are markedly below where they were at that time. And the aggregate debt levels, and by lower, I mean like 30, 40% lower. And aggregate debt levels, which I measure by by dividing it into GDP, have really not been climbing uh, noticeably. So I think we have something different now. Now, there's other pockets right now where you have really rapid uh, growth in debt, because of compromised lending standards, private equity lending is one of those areas. That's gone from, let's call it five or 600 billion to 1.4, 1.5 trillion in the last few years because lenders are rushing in to do private equity deals. Values are going up as they always do in the early stage of a lending boom. uh, You have loans that are what folks call covenant light loans, which of course is a euphemism for compromised lending standards. So it's not happening in residential mortgages, but there are a few areas of are concern in the U.S. And by the way, there are even greater levels of concern in the real estate in other countries around the world, obviously, most notably China.
2: Yeah, so lending standards go out the window. So we're not like looking at an 08, 09, but so many of the people who are entities buying properties in the U.S. now or institutional, which we've never seen before, institutions buying up single-family homes and like you said a lot of these institutions are really uh, getting uh, major injections of debt via low artificially low interest rates from the federal reserve all these things so potentially we could have a meltdown but instead of seeing uh, onesie twosie foreclosures take place uh like we did during 08 and 09 we could see huge entities losing thousands of homes going on the auction block at a time. So it's different in that the, uh, the excessive debt is taking place in a different sector, like you said. Now, one thing, uh, being a student of these crashes, you have to be a student of inflation and a student of so-called transitory inflation. But what's your take on the current inflationary situation in the U.S. and the world, what we're going through? you know we've always had let's call it 3
1: years you know 2 2 to 4 years of very high inflation after our major wars so after the civil war after world war 1 after world war 2 we had rampaging inflation that in some, some cases went up to 20 30 40% briefly but that was because the supply was disrupted you know all the farms in europe had been destroyed after World War I and World War II. It took several years to bring those farms back on stream. Manufacturing plants had been bombed. You know, so it took the soldiers a year or two to come back for more and repopulate uh, those. And then if you study the data, once that happened, once the farms came back on stream, once the workers went back to work, inflation stopped almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm talking it wasn't years, it was two, three, four months. Inflation was back to 1% or something like that. I think the period we're in now is much more like that. It's a supply disruption period. I expect it'll be a couple of years. It takes a while to work things like this out. We've got things like Omicron coming along that could elongate that. But I think once that we got that under control, whenever that may be uh, inflational, we enter a disinflationary period.
2: All right. Well, you're maybe you're a little more optimistic than I am on that topic, because look at all the money, the artificial increase in the money supply due to uh, stimulus, et cetera. And then due to the stimulus, we've got a labor shortage, all these things taking place. You see that uh, probably closer to your neck of the woods and Northeast urban areas, uh, they're paying burger flippers eighteen twenty dollars an hour, plus, uh, plus a significant uh, sign-up bonus. Uh, you know, obviously those wages are not going to go down. They might eliminate jobs, but they won't be able to put the genie back in the bottle, will they? Don't just survive. Thrive. The Financial Survival Network. American Eagle Gold is focused on exploring for a world-class gold deposit on its flagship property, Golden Gate. Located in the Cortez Trend, next door to Barrick Gold and Newmont Mining's Gold Rush and Cortez Mine, they have produced over 27 million ounces of gold. The company plans to drill and advance its relatively unexplored property and continue to focus on acquiring and advancing gold projects in the area. Vice President of Exploration, Mark Bradley, was at the helm of the team that discovered and defined Gold Rush and has spent the better part of 30 years working on the Cortez Trend. American Eagle trades under the symbol AE on the TSX venture For more information and to sign up for notifications go to AmericanEagleGold.ca. this is the financial survival network the information you need to
1: thrive, thrive. now more than ever you know I, again I would I would say that that's exactly what happened post-war in those major wars. this isn't exactly like that but it's similar and I will tell you there's a very simple analysis you can do which is, you know, we have data, the OECD and the Fed and others have data on the good data on, let's call it, 47 countries around the world out of the 200 countries. And those 47 probably constitute 95% of world GDP. And the data goes back to, in most cases, you know, the 50s or 60s. In the case of the United States, it goes back a couple hundred years. It's pretty easy to go in and find the periods where there was rapid money supply growth and see if that was followed by inflation. And and in my analysis, uh, that's not uh, even remotely true. The You know, I think that the idea that money supply growth causes inflation, you can't find that anywhere in the data. So I, it's not something I worry about too much. Sure. In fact, I go one step further. I'm going to say that money supply growth and government debt growth and central bank debt growth actually do the opposite, that they cause uh, interest rates and inflation to go down over time. And. If you look at the period from 1950 forward, um, you know, debt was moderating up until about 1980. Debt exploded in growth since about, let's call it 80, 81, not just in the U.S., but in China and Japan and Europe considered as a whole. And in all four of those big economic blocks, debt has gone up and inflation and and uh, interest rates have gone down in that enfi- entire 40-year uh, period, which leads me to believe that there's a causality to grow and growing debt, money supply, and the lower interest
2: rates. Okay. So you raised China. Let's talk about China for a bit. Uh, their real estate uh, boom uh, is entering a major contraction phase. Uh, if you want to have a good laugh out there, uh, go into YouTube and search the term Tofu Dreg, T-O-F-U-D-R-E-G. And you will come up with thousands of videos of Chinese construction projects uh, basically going kaput. Uh, Walls falling down, buildings falling over. It looks like the Chinese real estate boom was built uh, on a uh, on a foundation of quicksand, much like that uh, skyscraper, that high rise that collapsed in Surfside, Florida. Multiply that times tens of thousands, and you've got a real issue there. And what does China do? How did they get out of this mess? Because. Arguably, they could be the world's largest economy now, second largest, depending who you talk to. Uh, but when China catches a cold, now the rest of the world catches pneumonia.
1: Yeah, China's something that I've been studying and writing about for a number of years now, and they've got exactly what you describe. They got a huge problem they built up, and it it really started in about '08 because. Prior to that time, the West's debt binge had powered the Chinese economy forward and their aggregate debt levels to GDP actually moderated or or declined during that period. So they had it all going right at that point. Since then, their corporate debt alone, I think, is increased by the equivalent of like $12 trillion uh, in a U.S. dollar equivalent. And as you pointed out, I think that they estimate there's 90 million empty residences in China. There's, you know, that's, that's more citizens than most countries in the world have, period. So the way they have powered their economy is just by giving their banks complete carte blanche to lend. And in fact, some cases, the directive to increase lending. Uh, and they have powered by building buildings for which there is no need. And that has really come to a point where folks like Evergrand, which was in the news quite a bit here a couple of weeks ago, you know are probably going to fail or be sold off in pieces. The billionaire owner is not going to be a billionaire anymore. the might be in jail. Uh, they they got a problem. and 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 it's not just their real estate that's a problem for them. They also have are facing a declining population do their ill advised one child policy you know it's it's they're going to have as many or
2: more problems than anybody in the world over the next few years yeah i find the whole thing fascinating uh, it's uh, you know a lot of people go to nascar races indianapolis 500 to basically watch uh, watch the crash watch the pile up And I feel like I'm at the Indianapolis 500, but that the uh, drivers didn't know it was an Indianapolis 500 race, an IndyCar race. And instead, uh, they thought it was a big demolition derby and they've pretty much uh, started crashing into each other. And we'll, we'll see what's left standing. Yeah, I, I
1: I would say one thing
2: and I and I have
1: studied this fairly closely and China had its first major real estate crisis in 1999. You remember that was a period when most of the countries in Asia had a crisis of some sort. Japan certainly had its big crisis then from which it has never really recovered. You had the seven tigers, you know, Thailand and Indonesia and others had big crises. China, you know, had had entered the capitalist world in the early 80s and had been on a relentless debt boom, that all came tumbling down in 1999. And China's government stepped in in an extraordinarily creative way and cushioned the blow. They they went in and they created, there's four major banks in China, and they took those four banks and they created four what we would call bad banks, you know, asset management companies. And they allowed those banks to transfer their bad debt into those asset management companies at par, at par. So the banks took no losses for their bad debt. You know, they propped up these asset management companies with accounting gimmickry, if you will. They injected a little bit of new equity in there. We in the West had our debt boom and voila, within two or three years, they had made the problem disappear. Now it manifested itself in higher China government debt. I, th- I think there's a generation of folks in China that know how to paper over these calamities. And I, I suspect we'll, we'll see it be bad, but not a crisis, because they will use government funds to prop everyone up. And their government debt to GDP is about 70% right now. I can see that easily growing to 100, 125 over the next few years. And all that money will be spent to remediate the problem. The result will be what's happened in Japan. China will go from this country that was growing at six, seven, eight percent a year to a country that grows basically at zero percent a year. That's what I think
2: the outcome is going to be. All right. And you just outlined a problem. And I know you think about this called the Dukes of Moral Hazard because in 99, they just took the bad stuff off the balance sheets because most of the banks, all the banks in China are state owned, they're not independent. So they just took it and put it in a uh, RTC type corporation and then papered over it and basically the government assumed the debt. Uh, In the US during the SNL crisis, you could argue whether we handled it properly or not, and there's a lot of blame to go around. But eventually, all that bad debt came off the balance sheets of these SNLs, but the SNLs were liquidated, acquired, merged, and pretty much the government I don't know if they actually made a profit on the RTC but it wound up not costing that much money in the scheme of things. Originally, it was like $300 billion was the cost. The eventual cost was a fraction of that, uh, mainly probably due to interest expenses. But fast forward to 08 and 09, we forgot the lessons of the SNL crisis in the US, and we just rewarded these banks for recklessness, for reckless lending, for liar loans, et cetera, uh, you know, all that good stuff. And fast forward to now, we got a replication of 08, 09 on steroids, not so much on the real estate front, consumer real estate front, the actual owner occupants, but we have it on a much greater scale in every other aspect of the economy, hedge funds, off balance sheet financing that takes place of these private equity. Groups, uh, banks becoming partners in private equity hedge funds, all of this. Uh, when you see that we don't learn from history, you know Richard the old saying: the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. It's got to make you want to pull your hair out, doesn't it? You know it
1: does. Uh, you know I, I would say though that right now with it, this is something that I watch and that I have a group that watches is, as or more closely than anything. Our lending, if you divided into GDP to normalize what it is over time, it's kind of like the lender's debt to income ratio because GDP is effectively income, has been very benign for well over 10 years now. It's only been in the last year or two that it's percolated the way you've suggested here. If that keeps up for another year or two, I'm going to start being pretty alarmed. At this point in time, you know, I think there's a Uh, uh, we we use green, yellow, and red. You know, it's been green. It's somewhere between green and yellow right now. Uh, We're going to watch it closely and and see whether it goes to yellow and then to red. There's countries
2: around the world, like France, like China, where it's flashing red right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually saw real debt go down. That's the interesting thing. It was always a considered because we have this thing called credit creation, which actually banks, commercial banks in the US and in other countries have the ability to create money and it was always thought in the past and it's interesting i'm really happy you're on the show because uh, i haven't found any guests could really discuss this with but normally it was believed that credit creation uh went hand in hand with increased money supply but what we've seen with the banks is their reserves have like doubled or tripled but the actual amount of real debt on their books is, has been stagnant, like you said, up until recently. And that's a phenomena that we've never seen before. What's your take on it? You know, the, the, the creation of reserves is largely a function of the,
1: let's call it $3 trillion that the government has created through its uh, various pandemic support programs. We've never seen anything like it. Most of it so far has ended up on the balance sheet of the Fed it's something that's going to be you know delicate to unwind from but i want to throw one little data point out here and that is you know i look at the size of the central bank relative to the economy and like i said the i call them the four and a half other major economic centers in the world so there's our federal reserve then there's the bank of japan then there's the people's bank of china and then there's the ecb and then lagging as the fifth central bank is the used to be important, but isn't quite as much anymore. Bank of England. Sure. So and if you take each of those and you divide the size of the central bank's balance sheet into the economy to see what the relative size of each of those is, the Fed still, you know, is like less than 50 percent of GDP. Bank of Japan is at 100 percent of GDP. Uh, You know, uh, the same is true for the PCOB and it's rapidly becoming true at the ECB. And as we know, in Japan, I view Japan as kind of an arbinger of the future. Japan's interest rates and inflation are near zero. And the size of its um, central bank is 100 percent of its GDP. So it's I think the consequence is going to be the opposite. I think all that means lower interest rates, lower growth. You know, I think it's it's a burden on the economy, but it doesn't create inflation.
2: Well, Richard, delay. I really think uh, you need to be looking at higher office here. Uh, there almost was a vacancy as a Fed chair, but uh, but that no longer is going to be the case, unfortunately. Um, but the actual, the idea that somebody uh, in charge of our monetary policy actually uh, views history, looks at all those panics, those major panics that we've had, and actually diagnoses the underlying cause because it looks like our existing Fed is completely clueless. I don't necessarily know that we're in an enviable position in this country in terms of debt, government debt. Uh, we've got these this entitlement crisis coming. You look like probably a few years younger than me. Uh, I'm going to get a chunk of my Social Security. I'm going to get Medicare in a year but our real debt is uh, hundreds of trillions of dollars. And I guess we're gonna find out if you could just print your way out of these messes or eventually if you have to pay the piper. Well, the most important thing you said in all of that was that I look younger than you.
1: (laughs) Because because you look like you're about 28. (laughs) Oh, thanks. And I'm easily 20 or 30 years older than you, but I'm immediately gonna go tell my wife that I look young so that she'll know. (laughs)
2: Hey, well, point is, you know, there's a mess coming down the road here. Uh, all well, you know, states-
1: it, 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 we do have a mess coming down the road and it's going to be very hard to manage. And, um, you know, a lot of folks have said this and I would echo what others have said. And, you know, um, you know, we're, we're our problems are many. They're just a lot less than everybody else's. <laughs> so, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's because we have the reserve currency, of course. Hey, I'll just uh, conclude our interview with uh, this quote from Will Rogers. I'm sure you're a Will Rogers fan. And uh, he was talking, I think, around the, well, probably around after World War One, And he said, ignorance got us into this mess and ignorance will get us out.
1: <laughs> well, I grew up in
2: Texas and he's from Oklahoma and we worshiped Will Rogers. So I, I heartily applaud that quote. Hey, I love Will Rogers. I'm a quote collector, a quote Smith. I've got a bunch of my own quotes too, as well. Hey, Richard, uh, to find out more about you, your personal website, Richard Vague, just like the word V-A-G-U-E.com. That's the best place to go get your books, check out your writings, and follow you. That'd be great. Thank you. All right. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got a question for Richard, uh, please send it off to me. It's been a really intriguing interview. I'm going to extract a pledge from you now, Richard, that you will come back on the show at regular intervals and discuss these issues. Definitely uh, one of the best guests that we have had on in a long time. And the fact that you're actually fighting the fight right now, you're in the government in a I won't comment on the political situation in uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but it's similar to the situation in uh, many other states that uh, that aren't embracing pro-growth policies that are forcing residents to leave the state in droves. But we really do appreciate you coming on. Any questions, comments, again, email kl at karylutz.com. We'll get an answer from Richard. Richard, we'll look forward to having you back on the show. Keep up the fight.
1: It's been a privilege. You've got a great show, and it's an honor to be with you. Thanks for listening to Carrie Lutz's Financial Survival Network,
0: your solution to today's trying times. For the
1: latest, go to Network.com.
0: Financial Survival Network,
1: now more than ever.